Have you ever been reading scripture and you come across some text or story and you're like, what on earth is going on? I, I mean, you know, this is, that's just about every single story in the Old Testament. But then every so often we have one in the New Testament that shows up, and, and our text from today is really one of those for me. It's one of those stories that uh, I, I open it and I read it, and I know the story because I've been in school for it for eight years and, you know, had to wrestle with it and, and have had to preach on it before and all this stuff. But it's still one of those stories that frustrates me to no end. So let's recap a little bit of this story. Jesus, this is in the Gospel of John, Jesus has come to Jerusalem. And uh, while he's in Jerusalem, he's around the Sheep's Gate. So in Jerusalem, there are a bunch of different entrances to the city, uh, walled entrances, and this is one of those entrances, the Sheep's Gate. Presumably it was called that because that was the most convenient gate for the shepherds to enter through. And just inside of the Sheep's Gate, there is a pool there called Beth Zatha, uh, in the Hebrew, you may know it more familiarly as uh, B- the Pool of Bethesda. Um, not a quite accurate translation, but it's there. Uh, this is one of the few archaeological sites in our biblical text that uh, archaeologists have been able to actually dig up and uncover almost in its entirety. You can, st- you can go and visit it uh, even today. It's a really, really powerful place to be. Um, so Jesus is there, and at this pool... There are a bunch of other people who are laying around, people who aren't uh, well, to use uh, an expression from Jesus, Uh, people who uh, have many different uh, ailments going on in their lives, paralysis, uh, inability to walk, uh, blindness, presumably some other things, maybe a couple of people with the cold are around this pool. And, And they're there because there's this tradition that every so often the water gets stirred up Whatever that means, the water gets stirred up. And if you can get into the water whenever it gets stirred up, then allegedly you would be healed. And so there's this man who has some ailment about him, something that he can't walk or move very well. And he has been coming to this pool every single day for 38 years. That's longer than Jesus has been alive at this point. Okay, 38 years this man has been coming to this pool and has been laying at this pool. I guess somebody, a friend or family member brought him and they would lay him by this pool and he waits until the water gets stirred up just off of the hope that maybe he could get into the water and, uh, and be healed. And it hasn't happened for 38 years. And so finally Jesus comes along uh, and sees this man and says to him, do you want to be made well? And he says, I don't have anybody to get me into the water. I can't do it on my own. And all these other selfish people keep getting in there before me. Been here for 38 years. And Jesus says to him, get up, take your mat, go on your way. And he does so. He's he's made well. Now, if that story doesn't make you a little uncomfortable in some way, let's unpack some of these uh, some of these curiosities that are laying uh, within, this, within this text. The first is, and this is the reason why I got you to take out your Bible, because if, you're, if you read from the Pew Bible, most Bibles, you'll notice that there is no verse 4 in that. It's verses 1 through 9, but it goes from verse 3 to verse 5. It skips right over verse 4 there. Okay, that's odd, right? <laughs> why, why wouldn't they just put three... 
four and label verse four as uh, label verse five as verse four. Well, uh, up until we uh, a couple of years ago, we believed that there was a verse four there. Another verse that kind of explained a little bit more what was happening, but then we uncovered some older texts uh, in the Dead Sea Scrolls and uh, other locations. We uncovered some even older texts and found originally when this was written, there never was a verse 4. But that verse 4 kind of explains something. If you have like the, uh, uh, the New King James Version, I think is one that has verse 4 in it. Some of these translations that were based off of um, texts that were written a little bit later, uh, they have verse 4 in it, and it talks about how uh, an angel would come and stir up the waters. An angel would come and stir up the waters, and anybody who entered when the angel would stir the waters, they would be healed. Now, why is this strange, that this verse is missing? Well, first off, it's an entire verse that's missing that explains something that's kind of crucial to why the people are there. But that's not even the strangest part about all of this, right? So, in addition to there being a whole verse missing. Another thing that I find curious is that the very notion that people would get healed by getting in this pool. Because there were enough people gathered around, it even says in in verse 3, in these pools lay many invalids. There are many people around here. So apparently, they have to have some evidence enough that people have been healed here. Otherwise, what's the point of coming to this pool? They had to have at least seen something, surely, right? Um, Archaeologists, whenever they uncovered this pool, its actual site, they found out really what was causing the waters to stir up. (laughs) Um, They found out, uh, not an angel, it's an ancient filtration system that would cause the waters to stir up. There are, at the pool of Bethzatha, or Bethesda, it's actually two different pools. There's an upper pool, that was fed by a local creek or river. And then there's a lower pool, which was used as a mikvah, a ritual place of cleansing. And every so often, an architectural design, uh, the water from the upper pool would flow into the lower pool and just refresh it, replenish it. And that would create the swirling, and then there would be like this clean water in there. And so, you know, Okay, that makes sense. There's a little scientific explanation for that. But yet still, people believe that other people were getting healed in this pool. And maybe they actually were. I'm not sure. We don't get that much. But it's at least enough to have this man for 38 years every single day come to this pool. Strange things are happening here. The third thing that I find unusual about this is that, once again, there are many people around these pools. And yet Jesus only goes to this one man. Why this one? Why just this individual? I mean, it says Jesus saw him that he uh, Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time. But is it just like a seniority thing? Jesus just goes to the people who have been there the longest. Why didn't Jesus bring healing to the other people who were at that pool? Or did he? And we just don't have record of it. Just some strange at least for me, frustrating things going on in this text uh, that, that I don't like because I like a happy, uh, a happy, well-rounded story that I can understand and grasp, but this is weird. It's strange. And then we get to the fourth curiosity in this text. It's perhaps the most unusual and obnoxious thing that Jesus could have done. Jesus looks upon this man who for 38 years has been lying beside this pool hoping 
to get into the waters to be made better. And Jesus looks at him and, and asks him, do you want to be made well? I mean, think about that. For 38 years, for almost four decades, this man's been laying there. Wanting to be made well by getting into the waters, because that's apparently his only hope. And Jesus has the audacity to come up to this man and ask, you want to be made well? I don't know about you, but that seems a little bit rude for Jesus to just come up and ask something like this of a person. Um, I would think so. I would think he would want to be made well. But maybe, maybe I'm completely off book here. So why does Jesus ask this question? Do you want to be made well? I think that we have to, for a moment, unpack the consequences of being made well. Do you understand what I mean? To unpack the consequences of what it means to be made well. To answer this question that Jesus asks, do you want to be made well? We have to understand first that there are two types of ailments. Two types of illnesses or hardships that can come over the human body. There are acute illnesses. These are illnesses that come on suddenly um, they interrupt our lives, but they don't last for very long, and by and large, they get resolved, and we can go about our day. These are things like the common cold, uh, a broken bone, uh, an allergic reaction, things that are, I mean, they're pretty inconvenient and sometimes pretty severe, but once they're resolved, we can return to life as normal. Then there are chronic illnesses, ailments, things that happen to our body. These are the things like uh, asthma or paralysis, that whenever, whenever we experience them, our whole lives have to change around them. Healings are not very common, and life without these chronic illnesses seem like a pipe dream. These are the kind of things that, that we just have to let our lives be completely changed by, and we have to learn to live a new way whenever these kind of uh, ailments come over us, chronic illnesses. So there are two instances in my life that I want to be a little vulnerable about this morning. Two things that have happened to me that kind of address the acuteness and the chronicness of it all. The first is, um, I was born, uh, like all other human beings, and uh, no, nobody wanted to laugh. Brian laughed a little bit at that. Thank you, Brian. <laughs> Uh, I was born with a heart defect. I was born with a hole between my left and right ventricles. Um, so when I was three years old, I had open heart surgery. I don't remember anything from it. it was something that happened to me. Uh, that's, I've got pictures, and that's all I really know. Um, but for the next several years after this heart surgery, I had to go and see a cardiologist pretty regularly just so they could make sure that the surgery was holding well, that everything was going all right. And about seven years after my surgery, um, at the cardiologist, and he's doing a little ultrasound thing. There's this weird gel, and I'm hooked up to a bunch of electrodes. It's really cool for you know, a 10-year-old kid watching this happen, but, uh, but he's doing this thing, and he says, uh-oh. He said, that's, that's not good. <laughs> that's not what you want to hear from your cardiologist. <laughs> um, what, what he saw was that there was a membrane growing inside my aorta valve, complicated medical terminology. Essentially, he described it like putting your thumb over a hose, a hose that's turned on, you start putting your thumb over it, the pressure starts getting stronger, and you start closing it up, and all this pressure is building up. He described it like that. Uh, and so I had to have another heart, open heart surgery whenever I was, uh, I was about to turn 12. 
And, um, and it was, I mean, a truly a blessing that I even had the first open heart surgery because otherwise they wouldn't have caught the second thing and they estimated by about age 21 I would have just dropped dead. Um, that would have been kind of the end of me. Uh, but they found it, they went in and fixed it, and uh, they made everything well. This open heart surgery, though, I remember a little bit better. Still pretty foggy, uh, but I really remember the recovery process. For the first almost month, I couldn't even lift myself up out of bed. I, I just didn't have the strength for it. Uh, you know, they had to like stop my heart to work on it, and so that kind of takes a lot of strength out of people. Um, but, but for like a, a full month, I was still in this uh, in this recovery process. But eventually, I got better and better, and was able to reintegrate into normal life. Went to school, uh, started on time, didn't miss any school or anything like that, and was able to live life as normal. This was an acute illness that happened in my life, just for a brief moment. It seemed like a long time at the time, but just for a brief moment of my life, my life was interrupted and I had to put everything on hold until my body was made well. And eventually it was, now I'm perfectly healthy, I can do jumping jacks and stuff like that. At the same time, I don't know when this, uh, when this came on, but at the same time, I have been wrestling with a, uh, a chronic ordeal in my body. And this is something I've told you all about before, uh, I have a social anxiety that uh, I'm not ashamed of, but I just, it's just very hard to describe to people. It's a social anxiety that whenever I interact with other people, I, I know in my, in my head, I know in my very being that they don't want me around, that I'm a burden to them, and that they would rather be anywhere else but where I am. And in my head, you know, uh, intellectually, I know how ridiculous that sounds, and I know how insane that is, and, uh, and I know that there are people in my life who love me and, and cherish me, but it, this is the social anxiety, right? It does something irrational, and it messes with you, and so anytime I'm spending time with you, if you see me get fidgety, it's because I'm freaking out. I'm like, oh my gosh, they don't want me here. I know it's ridiculous, but it's, it's something I've uh, dealt with all my life. It's the, only, it's the reason why I only had like three friends growing up um, and you know, still today ha find a, have a hard time making friends. Um, being a pastor is not a very easy profession to have this kind of uh, social anxiety with. But I see a counselor. Um, I've seen a counselor for a while now. Nothing uh, I'm ashamed of. In fact, I think everybody should see a counselor, if not just to have somebody to talk to who, you know, that's just their job, so you can just talk with them. I think it's great. But uh, my, last, my last year in Atlanta, before moving down here, I was seeing a counselor because uh, I was working in a hospital as a chaplain, and part of my job was to go around to the different rooms in the hospital, and I'd knock on doors, and I would go in, and I would just uh, sit with people, talk with them, ask them how their day's going, see if I could be of uh, any company to them. And you can imagine that a person with my kind of social anxiety, that's a very challenging thing, to even knock on somebody's door knowing within your very being that they despise everything about that knock on the other side of the door. And so, I, you know, I'm seeing this counselor trying to get this resolved, uh, trying to, you know, work through this social anxiety and find a little bit of comfort in the middle of it all. And as she's working on me and she starts trying to, to fix me, I realize I don't want to change. Because if I do, if suddenly I am able to resolve this social anxiety and it just dissipates from my very being, 
then that means I really have to interact with other human beings on a normal level, and I don't know what that's like. And that seems really hard. And that seems really scary. I don't want to change that. So I still have it. Uh, you know, I'm still, <laughs> it's still something that, that lingers around because I, I, don't know if it, I don't know if it can be fixed or not, but I know that I am not ready to change that way. Even though in my mind, I know how much easier life would be if I, every time I'm not standing there talking with another person, my mind isn't running uh, a mile a minute thinking, oh my gosh, this person hates me. This person wants me to be anywhere but here. I'm being such a burden on this person and it's just on a loop like that over and over again. I can imagine life would be a lot easier if that weren't happening. But I don't want to change because change is hard. When we've become accustomed to our lives looking one way, when we've, when we've gotten used to our lives being something, we are often uncomfortable with our lives changing, even when we know we need or even want change. It's why people who want to live healthier lives uh, keep eating junk food, like myself. You know, I'm, think, I'm over here thinking like, I'm really gonna start eating salads like at least once a week. I'm gonna start eating salads. I would love to be able to get to once a day eating salads, but then I drive by a Taco Bell and I think, I gotta have it, I gotta have it. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's that, that whole mentality that it's harder to change our lives whenever we've become accustomed to one thing, whenever our entire lives have been defined by this one instance. You see, being made well as Jesus asks, to be made well means that you have to give up your old life. It means that you can't just stick around with life as it always has been. Once this man in our text is healed, there's no point for him to come back to the pool. He doesn't have to come back anymore. But that's what he's done every single day for the past 38 years. For almost four decades, he's come to this pool. And suddenly, he doesn't have to anymore. Life has to look different, and it's hard to make that change. So here's the thing. Jesus offers healing, spiritual healing, to every single individual on the face of this planet. We call this grace. The act of Jesus forgiving our sins and loving us unconditionally without us even doing anything. And then he turns to us and asks, do you want to be made well? In other words, do you want to live into this forgiveness and love and let your life reflect it? Do you want to be an agent of love and forgiveness in the world? Do you want to live for God and for God alone? If so, there's a caveat. Your life has to change. Do you want to be made well? Now, we start to think about this because God is calling us to new life. But new life means that we have to leave our old life behind. Consider the man in the story once more. After being made well, he then has to figure out how to reintegrate into everyday society. He has to figure out uh, that, you know, how to get a job now if he wants to provide for himself because begging isn't going to work for him so well anymore in this day and age. He'll need to walk everywhere on his own, something he hasn't done in 38 years because nobody's going to carry him now that he is an able-bodied individual. 
He'll need to learn how to interact with other people who see him as an able-bodied individual rather than as a beggar who can do nothing for himself. His entire life now has to change in order for him to live into this healing. Do you see what I mean? It's a lot harder to change our lives after a chronic illness than after an acute illness. After an acute illness, like the common cold, we can just jump right back in without barely missing a beat. Play a little catch up and we're good. But after a chronic illness, our lives have to completely change again. Do you want to be made well? It's a daunting question once we start to grapple with the consequences of being made well. You know, something interesting, uh, there aren't a whole lot of religious groups around the world uh, who, who actively practice converting people to their beliefs. Um, outside of extremist groups, you know, the Taliban, ISIS, but their converting is more for militaristic purposes than spiritual purposes. But then there's Christianity, and we, and we love being like, yeah, come on, come on to church, we'll get, you, we'll get that Jesus inside of you and turn your life right around. Not many religious groups in the world have this same practice. In fact, many Jews that I know, uh, they'll, they'll say that they actually discourage people from converting to Judaism uh, because they, they have this expectation that the followers of Judaism are going to actually live out their faith on a daily basis, not just coddle it by going to a service once a week. They have this, this notion that this matters. And so... To be, we as Christians, we often forget that when we choose this life, whenever we say, yes, I want to live into the love of Christ, that what we're, do, what we're asking of ourselves is to live into a more transformed life, to live lives that more resemble the love of Christ. That's what Christian means, to be a little Christ. To be made well, to accept the free gift of God's love and forgiveness means that our lives have to change. They have to look different. But what ends up happening is we say, yes, we love God, we live for Christ, but then we turn to lives which are filled with self-indulgence and sometimes even hatred because we weren't ready to give up our parts, those parts of our lives that were easy for us. Imagine for a moment that this man from our story, this healed man, finds out how different and even difficult it is to live into the society that was once passing him by every day. And so to make things easier on himself, to make things more normal for himself, he then does some reckless act to re-paralyze himself because he knows how to live a paralyzed life. He knows what it means to go to the pool every day. Can you imagine somebody doing that? It sounds almost insane to us for anybody to want to re-paralyze themselves, but that's what we end up doing as Christians all the time. We find it easier to return to a life without Christ as the central focus rather than, uh, than we do to live into an undignified love every single day. We go for what we know because what we know is a little easier. Even if we want something different, even if we know we need something different, it's easier for us to live into that which is easier. And so do you want to be made well? Jesus asked. There are two reasons that we might say no to this question. The first is, we don't think we're sick. Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a, of a physician, but those who are sick do. I have come not to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. He says this to the Pharisees. And why do you think that Jesus spent so much time with the people who knew they were sinners rather than the Pharisees? 
when the Pharisees were just as sick. In fact, the Pharisees were perpetuating a religion of, 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 uh, of uh, what's the word, um, hatred in some senses, but also uh, self-indulgence in many other senses, because the Pharisees didn't believe that they were sick, that they needed to be made well. And so if we don't think, if we don't believe that we need healing, then we're not going to seek it out. So my first charge for us this afternoon, almost this afternoon, this morning, is to ask ourselves, do we need to be made well? Now, the Sunday school obvious answer is yes, of course, we need to be, we need to be made well. But whenever we start thinking about the consequences of what that looks like, we might not be so inclined. Now, the second reason that uh, we might say no to Jesus' question is because we don't want to change our lives. We have, we, we've lived in chronic selfishness for so long now that to live any other way just doesn't seem natural. Jesus, however, throughout his ministry is constantly calling us to new life, to be transformed, to be born again out of a recognition that our old life needs to be left behind and new life needs to be embraced in Christ. New life. So my second challenge for us is to ask ourselves, how might our lives look different if we let Jesus bring healing? Because they do. They have to look different. A healed life has to look different than a sick life. And so we understand a little bit more about the consequences of healing as we ask ourselves, how might our lives look different if we let Jesus bring healing? As we prepare our hearts to go out into the world in this afternoon, the question that I hope we will all sit with throughout this week is the very same that Jesus offered. Do you want to be made well? Do you want to be made well? Recognizing that being made well means that we have to give up our old lives, but also recognizing that in our new life we are able to do boundless more than we ever could before. So do we want to be made well? It is a life that looks different. It is a life that has changed, but is also a more full life. In the healing of Christ, there is a world unknown to us until we accept this free gift of love and grace. A whole world which we could never imagine without that healing. I can imagine that this man from our text could not have imagined walking around town on his own again, going to the bakery on his own, being able to do things freely. But once he received healing, he was able to live into it. And so in that very same healing of Christ, this world that is unknown to us until we freely accept it is going to remain unknown. So let us be a people who when we hear this question, do you want to be made well, be a people who also are willing to say, yes, yes, I do. And let us pray.